Good morning. Welcome to Rising. I'm Robbie Suave, and I have the very special pleasure of being joined at the desk this morning by Amber Duke. You're not Brianna Joy Gray no. or a leftist <laughs> at all. In fact, <laughs> this imposter has infiltrated our show. <laughs> Infiltration. Careful. Uh, you're making me sound like an illegal immigrant. Or oh, no. <laughs> well, so that's what we're going to learn is that you're actually I'm the pretender and you're the real conservative of the two. <laughs> yeah, so. the audience is going to learn real quick. Yeah, they're going to have to brace themselves for that. All right. Uh, uh, Brianna will be back uh, later this week. She has the day off. Uh, thank you so much for filling in. And why don't you get us started? Let's do it. Chaos erupted when President Biden's motorcade was struck by an SUV in Wilmington, Delaware last night. Here's the moment caught on camera. Mr. President, why are you losing to Trump in the polls? The president and the first lady were unharmed and returned to their homes safely. The event appears to be an accident as the driver has since been charged with a DUI. And in case you missed it, Biden, at the beginning of that clip we just played, told reporters that polls showing him faltering against 2024 competitors were, quote, wrong. However, Decision Desk headquarters polling averages show that Biden is squarely trailing the, uh, former President Donald Trump and also South Carolina Republican Nikki Haley in head-to-head -head matches. Biden does best uh, when against Ron DeSantis by just a few points. Now, the president is currently battling his base over Ukraine, also the Israel Israel war spending for both of those efforts. And according to analysis in The Hill, the president's blanket support for funding weapons and aid shipments overseas may come back to bite him with the party's progressive base in 2024. So the reaction I had to that clip of, uh, of, of Biden you know, hearing the, the car accident, and this could be totally wrong, and yell at me in the comments <laughs> if you know more about these kind of protocols than I do, but they moved him too slowly for my taste. It was just, it wasn't, it was just a little too slowly. Didn't you feel like there wasn't quite enough hustle given that there was a clear, there was a, a, a crash or explosion, maybe it sounded exactly like a crash, very nearby, and they get him in that car. He, he, he's elderly. You got to be careful. You know, getting elderly yeah, people gingerly. into cars is something we've, you know, <laughs> we had an experience doing with our own grandparents and such. So maybe that, you know, they worried about bumping his head more than whatever the danger was. But I thought it was a little slow. It was a little slow for my taste too. I will say, even if you are in this moment of confusion, you don't know exactly what's going on. You don't know whether to put him in the car or take him back inside. There should have been some shielding going on, right? Yeah. Like they should have collapsed around him and made some kind of bubble to protect him. I, I was a little weird to me. Um, I also have to think about how wasted this guy must have been <laughs> to drive right into a presidential, presidential motorcade. I mean, if you've never seen one in person, they are yeah. unbelievably long. They all, a lot of the cars have yeah. their lights on, especially as the president is actually getting into the beast. It's yeah. impossible to miss. And in addition to that, they usually block the nearby roadways with, uh, with, 
motorcycles, police motorcycles with their lights on. So he had to have driven through like multiple red flags yes. in order to get to that back car in the motorcycle. Which is not good. It, I'm glad, you know, no one was injured. I don't think he was seriously hurt or the driver. Um, but it, it's the holidays. People should be careful. Don't drink and drive people. You know, it. Uh, you won't, <laughs> you are unlikely to ram into the presidential <laughs> motorcade of all the things that can happen to you, but it's not a good idea, so please don't do that. Um, when I first saw uh, this video footage like cross my social media feed before I checked out where it was, I just assumed it was the streets of DC because every time anything bad involving like a car or just some incident on the streets, I just assume it's in DC because we have like, I don't know if you were looking at the most latest crime statistics for mm. our beloved city, carjackings up just in, in Insane. Murders are up so, so high um, uh, compared to other cities. Crime is falling in a lot of cities post-COVID, which is a good thing. In our nation's capital, it's remained very sticky. We're not close, to, like, we're not all the way back to the, the heyday in, what, in, like, the early 90s. Right. But um, it's totally going the wrong direction. But, no, this was not in D.C. This was in uh, Wilmington, um, Delaware. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it's, it's funny. Obviously, Biden keeps saying that, you know, you're, the polls are wrong or you're looking at the wrong polls, but— Sorry, sorry, Joe. We all know that the polls have now consistently shown him behind the likely Republican uh, candidate, Donald Trump, the unlikely but I guess conceivable under some weird set of circumstances backup candidate, Nikki Haley, um, Biden behind in swing state after swing state, which is what really matters, like way behind. So I don't know what kind of polls he's reading. Maybe someone can ask Kareem Jean-Pierre about that. Right. No, it's really bizarre. I mean, typically when we look at poll bias in just the political industry um, in terms of all of these different firms, they're usually biased in favor of Democrats, especially yeah. the ones that have consistently shown Biden down by five, six points against Trump. And then, as you said, even worse in swing states. Um, the Des Moines Register poll that came out recently um, on the Republican primary was fascinating because it showed Trump actually leading that field in independence, which could potentially translate to a, a general. Um, I, th I find that incredibly fascinating. Um, but even with, uh, with, with the polls that, that have come out from the New York Times, um, the NBC News Harris X poll, consistently have the same story about Biden against Trump. And so I don't know how you explain that away and claim that suddenly the polls that all predicted Trump losing in 2016 are now biased against Joe Biden. I mean, the reality, too, is that Democrats are, one, oversampled in all of these polls, mm -hmm. and they weight the polls to try to account for that. But Republicans still don't even respond to polls as often as Democrats, mm -hmm. and they also don't often give truthful answers mm -hmm. um, because they're skeptical of pollsters. And like anyone who's knocked doors um, will tell you that they go to talk to Republican voters, and if they acknowledge that they received a call from a pollster, they'll be like, yeah, but I didn't tell them that I was voting for Trump. <laughs> Because they just, like, don't trust them. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's— Like, oh, the deep state wants my address again. Yeah, Go they, away. They, yeah. Especially over the phone. They do not like when pollsters call them. The only thing I'll say is that it seems to be the case that in both 2022 and then again this year, um, the Democratic Party overperformed some of the fundamentals in a way that, uh, that definitely surprised me in 2022, maybe not this year. Um, something uh, that wasn't 
quite, I mean, I, I don't know that it was a polling underestimation of Joe Biden's party, but at the end of the day, I didn't, I expected the Republicans to take back the Senate in 2022, given how bad the economic situation was and how much contempt there seemed to be for Biden. Um, the Republican candidates couldn't, you know, couldn't close it in Nevada, Arizona, um, and, uh, and, uh, and Georgia and mm -hmm. Pennsylvania. So does something like that repeat itself? Yeah, I think about that too. 2022 was an interesting case though, because everyone kind of underestimated the abortion question. Mm -hmm. And um, also Republicans did not really invest the way that they should have. They really tried to rest on their laurels heading into 2022. It, um, the RNC, for example, didn't really get involved in most of the races until the final two to three weeks because they didn't have much money. Um, and they tried to come up with this like weird delinquent voter scheme where they said, okay, if someone voted um, three weeks early in 2020, then, and they haven't voted at that time period in 2022, we're gonna spend all this money to reach out to them because they're called a delinquent voter. They haven't voted on their normal timeline. Well, obviously people's behavior changed significantly since the end of the pandemic. Sure. And so instead of spending money on voter turnout of your base and also trying to convince independents and swing voters, they decided to go after people who were probably already going to vote anyway or 90% going to vote anyway, um, but just hadn't by the time of election day. And it's because that was like the last minute scheme that they had to throw together with the little money that they had left. And mm. so I just think that 2022 was a case of poor Repu Republican management and over expectations over some like weird political thing we didn't see coming. Hmm. Well, Biden does have that in his corner that he is up against the Republican Party and, right. their, and their tactics, we, <laughs> their ability they, to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Exactly. <laughs> More rising right after this. Story I'm sure our viewers have been waiting patiently all weekend for us to cover. A staffer for Democratic Senator Ben Cardin was fired over the weekend after it came to light that he had allegedly filmed himself having sex in a Senate committee room. Now, we will not show the video for obvious reasons. Sorry to even put this graphic up there, but the footage of the former Cardin legislative aide was widely distributed online. The staffer had reportedly come under fire less than a week earlier for apparently yelling free Palestine at Republican Jewish Congressman Max Miller, though he has denied the suspect and has denied that aspect of it. Cardin's office was cagey with a response following the revelation, simply stating that the staffer had been fired and that it was a personal matter that they would not be expanding upon. The staffer in question appeared to deny being in the video at all in a LinkedIn post, and The Hill has not confirmed anything about his identity. In worse news for Senator Cardin, a group chat for gay men in politics anonymously told me that the committee room where the porn video was filmed was reserved using Senator Ben Cardin's name. Some online pointed out the seeming hypocrisy on Senator Cardin not condemning his staffer's behavior more forcefully, given statements he had made referring to the Capitol as a sacred space. Take a listen. January the 6th, like December the 7th and September the 11th, is a date which will live in infamy. I refer to U.S. Capitol as sacred space because it's so much more than a building where the Senate and the House of Representatives meet and conduct business. It is the embodiment of our ideals, our aspirations, and hope, not just to Americans, but also to all of humanity. 
Yeah, look, I think this, it, it's fair to um, call out Democrats like Senator Cardin for some hypocrisy here, for treating the Capitol building like some kind of sacred space, some kind of church in terms of January 6th, and then to have it be you know, treated this obviously inappropriate way by an individual. Um, you know, what was wrong with the January 6th riots is that it's not appropriate for people to smash windows and uh, mess up people's desks and fight with cops. That's not acceptable behavior, regardless of who's doing it. Similarly, this is obviously not. Ex ex I mean, it's a workplace. It's not. It's not that the the sanctity of the of the building was violated. That it's like some holy. Like they. <laughs> this is where they come and you know take and and confiscate all our money and right. and spy on us and make war. Like it's it's not a building where good things happen. So I don't I don't care about like again. The, it's not a it's not a church. It's not, that doesn't matter. But it's obviously inappropriate for someone in any workplace. If this was our workplace, if this was if this was a, if this was a McDonald's, it would be inappropriate. It doesn't matter. It's just like. You can't do this, and obviously this person needs to be fired. Yeah, I agree that it doesn't have so much to do with the government building. I think what troubles me about his particular position, though, is the fact that his salary is taxpayer-funded. Yeah. He has access to these spaces because of his taxpayer-funded job, and he is abusing them, of course, and apparently abusing the reservation system as well. Apparently, there are two ways that you can reserve these hearing rooms. One is via an online system that the rules committee that— um, uh, every Senate act office has access to. And then you can also directly book with whatever committee has jurisdiction over that room. So he probably did it during this online system. I'm trying to confirm that he did book it <laughs> under Senator Cardin's name, but um, obviously um, a, an abuse of this access that he had to the space where uh, former FBI Director James Comey testified at one point. They confirmed sure. multiple Supreme Court justices there. And you have this young man, unfortunately, defiling poor Amy Klobuchar's desk um, in this video. I mean, his LinkedIn statement was so bizarre, by the way. He goes on, and I, he sort of tacitly admits that it's him, but not outright. But then he goes on to say that he's being attacked for who he loves, implying that this is a homophobic thing, and then saying that um, he would never disrespect his workplace, which fundamentally yeah. that is what he did with his behavior. Yeah. Um it's the evidence compiled by other news outlets that it is, in fact, this person seems pretty overwhelming to me. I'm not going to specifically say his name for um, legal reasons, but it, it, it seems like they've identified the correct person to me. Um, yeah, further, you know, so regardless of the circumstances of the video being obtained or, or leaked, the underlying, like, you can't, again, you can't have sex in someone's, in, in the workplace. Like, that's just, that's prohibited very directly by, like, sexual harassment policies. That would not be acceptable in the pri in the private sector. It's actually, it's like it's forbidden. Correct. So it, it should be the same standard here. So that's neither here nor there. That's not even up for debate. I do, like, you know, I don't, um, I don't take any, I, I think it's, it can be very cruel to, you know, leak people's, the revenge porn kind of stuff, um, nude images and videos of people uh, you know, against their, without their permission and all that. I think it is very bad and even in some cases should be criminalized or there should be harsher penalties about it on social media. It seems to be the case here, what, you know, what has been reported is that uh, this was posted in some kind. Maybe uh, you. You've yeah, let's dig into that a little in bit more. Here, okay, so this specific video was shared in a group chat for gay men in politics. So my understanding is that there are dozens of people in it. By all intents and purposes, this was basically public. Um, yeah. And it was shared consensually. 
Yes. It was, so he shared his it. Not, he shared, he shared it. it. Yeah. Now, in addition to that, though, he also had a burner Twitter account using a fake name that was similar to his real name in which he routinely posted pornographic material with his face in it. So like daily right. tweets of nude selfies, nude videos, um, videos of him having sex with his boyfriend, who was supposedly the other person in this video taken in the Hart Senate building. And there were actual photos and videos on that account as well that were also allegedly taken in a government building. So, for example, there's one nude selfie that he took, and the caption on it was, snuck this in the work bathroom. Mm -hmm. And then people also were able to dig up some prior material that he actually took before he started working for Senator Cardin. So it's pretty astounding that they didn't find this during a basic background check before they hired this young man, where he asked Lindsey Graham to meet him in the showers while nude, and also asked Joe Biden to spit in his mouth in one of the captions. Yeah, uh, seems, so uh... maybe there are some questions to be asked about the screening process for Senate staffers as well. I mean, I'm a libertarian, so I, you know, people go out, live your best life, doesn't matter to me. I don't care what you do consensually with other people. I don't care what videos you take of yourself and other people. You can't do it in a public place, in a public workspace. That's just like obviously not um, acceptable. Also, the, those comments you just mentioned mm -hmm. seem not also professional. Yeah, if you're trying to work in of, politics, know, like seems... maybe you don't post those on your public Twitter account. Yeah, maybe keep that, you keep that thought to yourself. But I, I don't care, like I wouldn't, I'm not for like shaming people at all, but you can't, you just can't do this in a public workplace. <laughs> It'd be insane to, th and, and you know, I don't see anyone saying the otherwise, frankly. Have you encountered there any were a defensive? Couple, there were a couple of people. There was one sort of left-wing reporter who mm -hmm. was complaining that Allegedly, the only reason this video got out was because he was the same fellow who was accused of shouting Free Palestine at Max Miller. So they're claiming it's like an op from Max Miller's office. But apparently, this has been brewing in like. Yeah, but the I mean, even if that was the while. case, they didn't make up. I mean, he did it, something. Right. It doesn't make up for the fact that he did something obviously reprehensible. Right. I said and the then, same thing about like the Claudine, very different issue, the Claudine Gay, Harvard president, right. the plagiarism thing. Uh, it, it, when Brianna and I have argued about this, she'll say, well, it's only getting brought up because conservatives are mad at her for the things she said. And I'm like, well, that may be true, but like, the, if the underlying is accusation is accurate, then like, what are you supposed to do with that? You can't yeah. ignore it just because the person has some agenda you don't like. Yeah, I think that's right. And then there was another article by NBC News that snuck in the fact that conservative outlets were reporting it as if to like signal to their readers that you shouldn't pay attention to this yeah. or you should be opposed to it because it was first reported by conservative media, which is a common tactic. If a Republican staffer was having sex in Congress, that would be It would be a bigger scandal, I, mean, I think. It, honestly, if anyone, <laughs> honestly. anyone, it doesn't have to be just like sex in the public space in the building is going to be reported on and should and, and needs to be dealt with because that's not acceptable. Well, yeah, I mean, there's enough speculation that like half of Republican senators are gay from the left anyway, so I'm sure that mm. it, they wouldn't even need to be doing it in government buildings for that to be some huge scandal. Well, I will uh, just share my thought. Before I had one statement that I made on this issue on Twitter. Right, let's Can we put it up on the screen, please? Um, I am outraged by this vile, disgusting act committed in the U.S. Senate last week, a moral transgression, a shock to all decent Americans. I'm speaking, of course, about the extension of warrantless FISA surveillance. Good for you, Robbie. That's what out truly I like that. So, uh, okay, thank you for covering that with me. Thank you for doing so much reporting, really getting to You're the bottom welcome. of this. More rising right after this. As a tax 
attacks against commercial vessels by Iranian-backed Houthi rebels in the Red Sea continue, the U.S. is facing a conundrum, how to stop the attacks without triggering a military response from Iran. As Politico reports, the Biden administration has been reluctant to respond militarily against the Houthi attacks on commercial shipping in recent weeks for fear of provoking Iran, which backs Hamas and Hezbollah in Yemen, as well as the Houthis. Previously, the Pentagon had recommended the administration not do so, but a significant uptick in attacks in recent days could potentially lead top U.S. national security officials to change their calculus. The attacks in the region have caused many oil companies to pause shipments through the Red Sea for fear of ongoing assaults against their cargo. BP cited a, quote, deteriorating security situation as motivation to pause all shipping in the area. Let's listen. BP has announced that it's suspending uh, shipments of oil through the Red Sea. This is following uh, recent attacks on vessels by Houthi rebels. Uh, the oil giant said it's made the decision because of the deteriorating security situation out there, but says that the move is temporary, saying that the safety and security of, the, of our people and those working on our behalf is BP's priority, apparently. So this, uh, they are following in the footsteps of other uh, big oil companies who are boycotting the area as well. Journeys through the Suez Canal. Uh, started to be paused on Friday following attacks on vessels. Joining us now to discuss the situation in the Red Sea is Trita Parsi, Executive Vice President at the Quincy Institute. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. So talk to us about what can be done. Um, obviously, these attacks are very concerning, and we're living through a time of you know, escalating tensions um, in the region and globally, and no one wants to see um, you know, full war breakout, U.S., uh, greater U.S. involvement. At, at the same time, this does seem like a serious security situation. It's an extremely se serious situation, and this um, is one of the two main tracks in which the war in Gaza uh, can escalate. The other one is if the Israelis attack uh, Lebanon, which the U.S. government is very, very worried about. Um, and, and, of course, the impact the, the attacks on shipping in the Red Sea can have on the global economy should not be underestimated at all. Uh, the immediate impact on the Israelis is quite tremendous as well. But I think it also shows that as long as the approach of the Biden administration is to try to de-escalate by threatening further escalation, it actually leads to the type of conundrum that we're in right now. Because the options the administration is looking at is to see uh, how can it punish the Houthis militarily uh, in order to get them to stop. Whereas the most obvious measure uh, that would be far more effective and truly de-escalatory would actually be to work to make sure that there's a ceasefire in Gaza. Because if there is a ceasefire in Gaza, first of all, there were no such attacks by the Houthis prior to the war. The Houthis have made clear that they're going to stop if the Israelis stop the bombardment of Gaza. Um, uh, it seems to me much more worthwhile approach to consider, particularly mindful of the fact that there really isn't any clear U.S. interest uh, in seeing a continuation of the war uh, in Gaza with a massive uh, civilian deaths, the destabilizing impact, again, that we're seeing in the region, the damage it is doing to U.S. global standing because of its refusal to support a ceasefire so far. So it, it really uh, boggles the mind, what is it that is so worthwhile in the continuation of the slaughter in Gaza that instead of de-escalation, the administration is considering using military force in an extremely risky manner 
uh, ostensibly for the sake of de-escalation, but most likely will only lead to more escalation. So you feel that the Iranians and by extension the Houthis are basically saber-rattling in response to what the administration is currently doing in Israel? Well, I mean, if you listen to what the Houthis are saying, it's very clear that that is the message that they're sending. The extent to which the Iranians control the Houthis, I think, uh, deserves a little bit more scrutiny. Uh, and I think from their perspective, they're quite happy to see that the Houthis have taken on this role. I'm uh, pretty confident that the Iranians have encouraged it. However, I'm not as confident that if the Iranians decide that enough is enough and they want to help hold back the Houthis, that they actually have the power and influence to do so. The Houthis are doing this not just because of the Iranians, they have their own interest um, and, and pursuing the path that they're pursuing. Um, and so as much as the Iranians have played a role in it, so far it's not clear whether they can play the role to actually hold it back. You know, I think it's um, ideally, of course, I would like to see an end to the uh, violence in Gaza as well. The, the destruction of civilian lives is horrible. The images we're seeing coming out of this conflict, um, it, you know, pulls at your heartstrings. Um, it, realistically, however, the, the problem is, I mean, this, you know, the U.S. has supported and, and given um, aid to Israel, which um, you know, can be discussed even as a separate issue. I don't know that that's such a great idea. But the, the, the war in Gaza is going on, right, because of I Israeli forces. And Biden has tried to, you know, exert some pressure on Israel to limit um, civilian casualties. You know, you can argue that that hasn't been enough or hasn't gone far enough. But at the end of the, the day, given that this is—I mean, this is Israel's war and their commitment to basically wipe out Hamas at this point, um, Hamas is, doesn't seem inclined to surrender, uh, you know, has promised to wage more October 7th on Israel, given the opportunity. So the, the reality seems to me to be that D despite what our, you know, ideal might be for the end of the conflict to come swiftly, the actual on-the-ground reality is that is that Israel wants to continue this, and and Hamas hasn't really given them a reason not to continue it, independent of what we might think would be best for ourselves. So I think the question then is, what is the U.S. interest here, and what is it that the Biden administration should pursue? You're quite right; the Israelis absolutely want to continue this. And a growing number of Israelis also believe that Israel should expand the war into Lebanon. So, but that is what the Israelis want. The question is, what does the U.S. want and what does serve U.S. interest? It's very clear that the administration does not believe that an expansion of the war into Lebanon is in the U.S.'s interest. I would say that, you know, the administration is also very unhappy, as they should be, about what the Houthis are doing. So, so for how long should the U.S. should accept cost to its interest in order to facilitate uh, the Israelis pursuing what they believe is their interest in Gaza. Uh, and that's where I think, again, if the priority of the United States under the Biden administration was to make sure that the U.S. does not get dragged in to another war, then pressure on the Israelis, real pressure, not what we've seen so far, to be able to bring this conflict, at least the, the, the very bombings that we're seeing right now, to an end, would be necessary. But that is, again, whether, uh, you know, what the Biden administration puts up as its top priority. Uh, and so far, again, the administration has tried to uh, secure U.S. interest as a secondary priority. The first priority has been to give the Israelis uh, the leeway to do what they want to do uh, at a significant cost to U.S. interest. But that cost is now potentially getting so great that it may force the Biden administration to rethink it. 
I want to go back for a moment uh, moment to what you said about the potential economic ramifications of these attacks in the Red Sea. Um, there's obviously some uh, some pausing from BP on their oil shipments in the region. What kind of disruption could that have to the U.S. energy industry? How reliant are we on oil that might be coming through the Red Sea? So one of the great benefits of the United States right now is that it's actually not that reliant on the oil itself from the region. Uh, the U.S. is energy independent, and, and that's part of the reason why we should not have to be as involved in the Middle East as we were before, because uh, the region simply is not as strategically important. However, disruptions to global trade that will come as a result of anything that blocks uh, uh, the transfer of goods in the Red Sea, including energy, will have ramifications for the United States as well. It will be felt harder elsewhere. Europe is already in a very, very bad situation for the winter coming and will uh, feel the pain of this sooner than the U.S. will. But it will have implications for the U.S. as well. And anything that is ultimately bad for the global economy is in the long run also going to have uh, detrimental effects uh, for the U.S. And again, it's an election year coming up right now. Uh, those pains will be felt uh, by the average American, and that will have an impact on how they make their choices in November. Mm. Trita Parsi, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. A majority of Americans between the ages of 18 and 24 think Israel, quote, should be ended and given to Hamas, a survey conducted this week by Harvard-Harris polling found. 51 percent of 18 to 24-year-old Americans polled said they believed the long-term answer to the Israel-Palestine conflict was for Israel to be ended and given to Hamas and the Palestinians. Only 32 percent said they believed in a two-state solution, and just 17 percent said other Arab states should be asked to absorb Palestinian populations. A new CBS poll shows that most Americans disapprove of President Biden's handling of the Israel-Hamas war. A new CBS News poll is showing most Americans disapprove of President Biden's handling of the Israel-Hamas war, with few thinking his administration's actions are bringing things closer to a peaceful resolution. CBS's Skylar Henry joins us from the White House. Skylar, break down the numbers for us. Good evening. There's an increasing number of Democrats who think President Biden is giving too much support for Israel. This comes as Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin touched down in Tel Aviv this morning, where he'll meet with Prime Minister Netanyahu and other members of Israel's government to reiterate that America's ironclad commitment to Israel, also discussing IDF operations to dismantle Hamas and underscoring the need to protect civilians from harm and enable the flow of humanitarian aid into Gaza. Austin's visit comes just days after Israeli forces admitted to inadvertently shooting and killing three Israeli hostages during a raid in Gaza. According to the IDF, the three young men were alone and waving a white flag when they were gunned down, which is a pretty um, horrible story. And, uh, and the, gov the Israeli government has said that this was handled atrociously. And I, I hope there should be consequences um, for that, as it's a really uh, terror—imagine surviving the captivity, um, possibly either they, they were released or they might have escaped. Um, they were clearly not armed. They, you know, they had a—they were waving a white flag and gunned down by their own side um, is really um, gut-wrenching. But uh, so what do you make—so I found these po this poll very interesting. Um, I dug into it 
more deeply. There's a number of questions asked specifically about Israel and Gaza. And frankly, the one that, that went viral on social media that got shared that, that that was a very, I, I think, alarming, you probably found alarming as well, amount of support for Hamas among the youngest people. It's actually totally contradicted in several other questions, which makes me wonder, like, who are these people answering? Like, we, it, totally contradictory, because they also said, so here's a question, if Hamas is removed, should Gaza be administered by Israel, by the Palestinian Authority, or by some new authority set up through negotiations with Arab nations? So Hamas isn't actually even a option here. But 45 percent of the youngest people said administered by Israel. Hmm. That was actually more than any other category. 45 percent said administered by Israel, 41 percent by the Palestinian Authority, and then 14 percent said some new authority set up with Arab Asians. Um, they, in the question, should Hamas be allowed to continue to run Gaza or do they need to be removed, 42 percent of the youngest demographic said allowed to continue to run Gaza, which was more than the others, but still not a majority. That is interesting. I have to wonder, so did they also poll people of older generations? Yes, yes. So okay. they, have, they have 18 to 24, 25 to 34, and on and on and on, and 65 up. They have six different age categories. So I wonder what the margin of error on that is, because yeah. once you start dividing up by demographics like that, you start to get smaller and smaller sample sizes. Like maybe sizes. you only had three people in the 18 <laughs> to 24 mean, demographic. Yeah, I'd be curious to know how many people were actually in that cohort, and I'll, I'll try to find it. Um, because uh, there, another question, does Israel have a right to defend itself against terror attacks by launching airstrikes on heavily populated Palestinian areas with warnings to those citizens or does not have that right. And in the 18 to 24 demographic, 80 percent said yes. Yeah. 72 um, percent in the next category. You know, it, it was all in the 80s and 70s going forward. So their answer there weren't any different. They said, um, they said, but then they said, should Israel cease all hostilities now or keep going until Hamas is defeated? And in that question, 57 percent of the youngest people said cease all hostilities now, mm -hmm. which was more than anyone else. So it's all over the place is what I'm saying. It's just like from question to question, it greatly varied. Um, that makes me wonder if the poll was just, I know, I mean, these are, this, designed, is a, this is a competent maybe. polling firm, but maybe it was just poorly designed. Yeah, either it was poorly designed or these people genuinely have conflicting views and perhaps yeah. don't realize it. I mean, also in this 18 to 24 cohort, we see 67 percent feel that university presidents did not go far enough condemning anti-Semitism, which is actually higher than the entire group that was surveyed. Only 62 percent of the entire group said that. And then also 68 um, percent agreed that Jewish students on campus are facing harassment. Um, yeah. 73% of, or sorry, 67% of the 18 to 24 year olds also said that it is a, uh, that Jews as a class are oppressors and should be treated as such. Whereas 73% yeah. of all voters believe that's a false ideology. Yeah. It really is all over the place. So this, I don't know what to make this of this. specific question that got, that generated the social media. So do you think the long-term answer to the Israel-Palestinian dispute is for Arab states to be absorbed, uh, to, is, for Arab states to absorb the Palestinians, for there to be two states, Israel and Palestine, or for Israel to be ended and given to Hamas and the Palestinians? And in that one, there's this anomalously high 
51 percent in the in the 18 to 24 demo says for Israel to be ended and given to Hamas and the Palestinians. So maybe they didn't understand the question. Obviously, that's crazy to think that. I I, I think. I mean, no, I don't know anyone really. Maybe a very small radical group of people think that they, that 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 Hamas should be the governing authority of both Palestine, about the Palestinians and the Israelis. Like that's not even the. Uh, you know, the position of what I would say is like the very far left on this issue is, is not really that that Hamas should like right. also control should we should we should yes and what <laughs> Hamas's current uh, territorial position is. So maybe they were confused by the question. I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I certainly think maybe they were thinking of the West Bank. Or I don't I, know. I mean, based on, you know, the feedback I hear from viewers and commenters when Brianna and I discussed this, or when you and Jessica discussed this, I, I like I, I fully believe that there are a lot of young people who um, are, are more who, who think. I mean, I, I think that a lot of the Palestinian grievances are are correct, and what's going on is very bad. And I would like some solution to this problem where they have full recognition and autonomy. And I, I am not at all co-signing everything Israel has done in the past or is doing now um, with that, but. While at the same time recognizing that Hamas is a terrorist organization and it is not safe for Israel to be on the borders of an area run by this organization, um, younger people clearly, I think, ascribe more um, justification to the attacks on October 7th, given what the Palestinian people have suffered, than I do or than older Americans do. So I don't deny that there is that sentiment out there. I see it when we discuss this issue, but— um, but I don't know. Yeah, I always find it fascinating how vehemently people in general take sides on this issue. Like you're either pro-Palestine or you're pro-Hamas or pro-Israel or you're pro-Hamas or you're pro-Israel. And I, I definitely don't like the characterization from some pro-Israeli people that if you are pro-Palestine, then you are necessarily supporting Hamas. I don't think that's the case for most of the people who talk about this issue. It certainly is for a minority of them, which is unfortunate. Um, but very rarely do you hear people say, uh, actually, I think both sides have probably done atrocious things here. Um, both sides have expressed opposition to a real two-state solution that keeps things somewhat uh, territorially similar to how they are now, but perhaps gives more governing authority to the Palestinians as, and removes settlements from the West Bank. It seems like that viewpoint is not super represented in American mm -hmm. discourse right now. And that's why it's so hard to have these conversations. Like, I find myself routinely getting frustrated because if I say anything on either side, I'm suddenly characterized as pro the other thing. And I feel like I'm pretty in the middle on this issue, yeah, to be that's, frank. That's exactly how I feel. Um, yeah, I, I think you and I have kind of similar—we have different opinions on other issues, but I, I think we're pretty similar on foreign policy. And, 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 and yeah, you know, I don't—and and also, we, like, I understand the criticism in that we're supporting Israel right. with our tax dollars. I felt the same way about Ukraine. That's not—I uh, I think American tax dollars should be sent at ho spent at home. I, I think Americans— are right to feel um, to feel a little taken for a ride that there were always summoned to help every other nation and their security while we have crumbling infrastructure and we are, you know, have a wild amount of debt and we have all sorts of problems and then you know we're called to defend Ukraine when other our European counterparts aren't even spending nearly amount the same amount of money as we are so why are the American people always put upon so I, I, I absolutely think there's a I think there's a thoughtful uh, non-interventionist criticism of, of what's going on there. You know, how does this make us safer? Because right. really, that should be the goal of U.S. foreign policy, to make the U.S. a safer 
place. We don't want to inspire terrorist attacks here. We don't want to put U.S. soldiers in harm's way that then necessitates a broader conflict. So I'm very much willing, you know, to, to discuss all of those things. You know, while at the same time, I, I obviously I cannot, you know, endorse the, what was clearly a terrorist attack right. and what would have merited a response. Every competent nation on earth would respond to that kind of thing with an, an attempt to root out the people who did it, um, unfortunately, at the cost of civilian lives. I often have the same reaction to the justification of what Hamas did, as you know, the Palestinians have been oppressed for so long, as um, a, a sort of analogous argument that the left makes often domestically, which is like people who commit crimes need to have lighter sentences because it's merely because they're impoverished right. or their neighborhoods have been gentrified. And it's, right. to me, like the, the excuses don't work. Your actions stand on their own. You should take responsibility for them. And I have never in my life thought that it was acceptable to respond to um, a perceived injustice by killing everyone even vaguely associated with it, even if they didn't right. commit that injustice themselves, what? which is the case for so many of the Israeli people, especially the innocent civilians who were slaughtered on October 7th. And it seems so unlikely. The result of that has now been a catastrophic loss of Palestinian life in the in the the counterattack to root out Hamas. Like I, I, I said this before, but I, you know, I'm so sympathetic to the Uyghurs. They're an absolutely oppressed uh, population by by China. Um, you know, Taiwan, Hong Kong. We can talk about all of the, uh, the the Chinese authoritarianism. But like, if those groups, you know, responded to this by just like, you know, randomly kidnapping Chinese civilians or shooting people, like that would obviously be both not justified, right. and be a really dumb idea. Like, how is that going to help your position? It makes no sense to me. Yeah, you should be going after the people who are responsible yeah. directly for your suffering, not people who you think would be convenient to have as hostages to force the yeah. other body to come to the table or whatever Hamas's, like, deranged yeah. plan is. Yeah. But it's, right. a very, it's a very difficult issue, and I, it, it is wild how, um, how worked up people get over it, people have very strongly held a view. I mean, it, this is an issue on college campuses, the Israel-Palestine, that I'm sure you probably noticed as well. I noticed sure. at the University of Michigan, nothing brought out people's um, rage quite like this issue, which is you know, a, a kind of civil war, a regional conflict a world away. And here on American college campuses, it's the issue that results in more animosity than any other. So it doesn't seem like a healthy climate for addressing it, but uh, we will continue to discuss it here. More rising right after this. The European Union has a hankering for some fresh censorship, and Elon Musk is their new target, of course. Terry Breton, a digital commissar for the European Commission, announced the body was opening formal infringement proceedings into Musk over his supposed failure to counter illegal content and misinformation online. Breton has made statements in the past pushing for greater EU control over tech companies. Here he is last October. Well, just because we want, uh, again, uh, uh, to make sure that with this new regulation, and you're right, we announced this morning who are the, um, the platforms which will be uh, regulated under the DMA with their own services, 22 services. But of course, this is the first time that we are doing it. It's extremely important for these companies. They will have now six months to comply with our new rules, you know, to give more freedom for end, for end users to make sure that you could, you could select your own apps, uh, that you are not, not a prisoner from this platform, that platforms. 
As friend of the show Glenn Greenwald pointed out, Breton had been threatening to use the EU's new online censorship law against all big tech platforms, but is focusing on X due to perceived political vulnerabilities of Musk. major part of the EU's case is that X allowed too much pro-Hamas propaganda. Greenwald added that this is how his censorship industrial regime works. They seize on every alleged crisis to justify new censorship, Russiagate, COVID, January 6th, the war in Ukraine. Ever since October 7th, they've been accusing X of allowing disinformation information about Israel to attract right-wing support. So this is very disturbing, uh, although not surprising at all. Uh, the EU and Terry Breton in particular and other figures have uh, been complaining about there being too much, too much of a free flow of information on social media forever. Um, it is no accident that Europe has no technology, social media industry, that these are all American companies because regulation has made it um, too unfriendly to do business there. Um, we are, you know, despite a lot of issues, we have much more robust free speech protections via the First Amendment uh, in the U.S., in the European Union. They have nothing of that kind. And so Elon Musk and his company and other social media companies can be investigated and even punished for allowing what they deem misinformation. And it's clear they're talking about purely political speech about what's going on in Israel, for instance. They've said the same things about um, COVID and election integrity and Russia in the past. But what they're really talking about is political speech that they don't like for whatever reason. And Elon Musk believes this should be a platform for free exchange of ideas. I, I don't think the policies have always upheld that ideal, but it is totally at odds with, with, with what the European Union thinks, which is that bureaucrats, international bureaucrats, should be in charge of deciding what you get to say and think. Yeah, Europe more generally, and then just the international community repeatedly disturbed me with their position on speech. I mean, just recently, when there were those protests in Dublin in response to a, a terror attack, a knife attack, um, those citizens were uh, immediately cracked down on due to uh, like their hate speech laws. And then they're also proposing new laws in Ireland that would go even a step further that would actually criminalize people for even possessing uh, memes, for example, that would be deemed to be hateful. So you couldn't even share memes back and forth with your friends, or you could potentially be prosecuted by the Irish government. Um, I remember that the German government was behind funding this online disinformation project that helped to uh, uh, unmask or dox the libs of TikTok Twitter account. It was their research that led Taylor Lorenz from, <laughs> I believe she was at the New York Times or the Washington Post at the time, going to libs of TikTok's family members' mm -hmm. homes and trying to expose them um, for their so-called hateful speech. And now we have um, them going after Twitter, um, the EU going after Twitter. It seems, unfortunately, a pattern in that area of the world um, and not one that we're getting away from anytime soon. It is fascinating, too, to see just how much Elon Musk in particular has come under fire for supposed um, speech uh, I guess, hate speech violations since taking over X slash Twitter. Um, he's been very vocal about wanting this to be more of a free speech platform and has been taking blow after blow for his efforts and, to his credit, has so far refused to back down. Yeah, it's incredible to me that, I mean, European, I mean, the Europe, European culture and their regulators are like, frankly, they're like 60 years behind us in terms of their how they're thinking about speech works, right? Like we've, the U.S. went through all the, I mean, we had the First Amendment to begin with, but then it had to be litigated a bunch of times to establish that, no, you actually can't stop people from passing out 
like anti-war pamphlets. You can't, and you can't stop the Nazis from marching in a Jewish town, and you can't, you know, all the all these examples of hateful speech. We've like settled that. Nope, you get to do that. We have a very First Amendment protective Supreme Court now, and well, we still, you know, fight over something like we're working out right now in the courts whether the Biden administration went too far when they told, you know, social media companies that they suggested to social media companies that they take down certain COVID-related speech. Um, I'm hoping and expecting we get a Supreme Court ruling that um, that prevents some of that in the future. But they're still doing, over in Europe, they're still doing the, like, oh, yeah, there's there's too much—there's there's a conversation happening we don't like. Let's criminalize memes. Let's criminalize jokes. Let's—hate speech is, is, is scary, and we can't allow it, even though there's no definition for what constitutes hate speech. Hateful, hateful acts are—hateful uh, speech is subjective. Exactly. Acts are not. Violence, you can absolutely prohibit. You can prohibit—it's a clear difference between— you know, calling for violence in a kind of abstract way as part of your ideology, that we can re that we can respond to with criticism between either engaging in violence or calling for specific violence against an individual with enough malice of forethought that it can actually be, that it's criminalized. Like, these are lines we've worked through that they just haven't, it hasn't occurred to them yet. Yeah, exactly. We have all of this range of definitions for things like vague threats, indirect threats, direct threats, and varying legal procedures for all of those. And um, this, I feel like it's important to also bring up this uh, recent hit piece from Media Matters that uh, accused Elon Musk and X of—I uh, can't even remember what content they were upset about. Um, Anti-Jewish content. That's right. They were, they were upset content, that, yeah. um, that corporate advertisements were supposedly showing up next right. to pro-Nazi or white supremacist content. And it turned out that they had basically manipulated the algorithm in such a way that they would have this one-in-a-million event happen. They followed 30 hate, hateful accounts. Um, they then refreshed their page thousands of times until finally they were served an advertisement from one of these corporations next to the content that they had deliberately followed and only followed, and then took screenshots of it and pretended that this was a regular occurrence on X, for which they're now being sued for fraud um, because a bunch of these corporations pulled their advertisements from the platform. And so it's become a routine thing that um, these sort of— uh, censorship-minded individuals, governments, countries now are obsessed with trying to delegitimize X as a platform because it's basically the only social media company at this point that cannot be entirely controlled by the Biden administration. Yeah. Now, you're so right to bring that up. It was a complete hoax enacted by these, the third-party groups that are responsible for, do, you know, who have appointed themselves the hate speech monitors. And they have such a bad uh, track record with statistics. I've criticized the ADL a number of times in the past for um, exaggerating um, the, the, the hate crime reports or, you know, finding ways to characterize the situation as you know, always getting bad and always getting worse, which is not to say that there aren't real episodes of anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic violence, hate crimes against all manners of groups. They do happen. There is hate on social media. Some of it crosses the line into, uh, into content that should be taken down, that, you know, most of us believe should be taken down. Um, you know, terroristic speech or the actual organized violence happening on the platforms, um, uh, some sexual content, particularly, you know, against people's wills or with minors, should be dealt with. So it's not like there should be no moderation or no regulation whatsoever, but 
the regulators, it's political speech. They're targeting right. your political speech because they don't like the agendas of people like Elon Musk or populists or the right in general. And we, we see the danger of, of giving them this power. I mean, in Europe, they already have this power and they should be deprived of it. Absolutely. I mean, I just always go back to so many things during the pandemic that were called conspiracy theories and removed from platforms like X and Facebook and Instagram and YouTube that later turned out to actually be true. You're, you're, uh, you write additionally for The Spectator. I can't remember if they were on this list, but The Daily Caller was, a lot of conservative outlets. Reason, where I write for, we were on this most dangerous websites list right. uh, by the Global Disinformation Index, which is a British group funded by the State Department. We're funding it? Why? To put, like, like American taxpayers are funding a list that American media companies are being put on, accused of spreading hateful misinformation for talking about the lab leak theory. Now the, now the Energy Department has concluded the lab leak theory is the more likely explanation for COVID's origins, but you were considered hateful by European fact checkers for daring to ask questions about that. Isn't this why we fought the Revolutionary yes. War was yes. so that we didn't have to listen to European bureaucrats about what we are and are not allowed to say. That's right. If I they mean, put up a monument to Thierry Breton, they'll be advocating that one being <laughs> taken down. I will, I will say that. <laughs> Good deal. More rising right after this. President Trump made an appearance at the Colby Covington versus Leon Edwards UFC fight on Saturday, flanked by Dana White and Kid Rock, and the crowd could not have been happier. Let's take a look. And who is in the building? But former president Donald Trump, escorted by UFC president and CEO Dana White. And they are all rising inside T-Mobile Arena to pay their respects to the former leader of these United States of America. Donald Trump is a massive UFC fan. He's watching our fight nights at home, but he has been omnipresent at our live events this year, and he is out to support the former interim champion, Colby Covington, tonight against Leon Edwards in our UFC welterweight championship main event. All right, next on ESPN2, men's college hoops, NC State and Tennessee. But our prelim coverage ends here from Vegas. You know what time it is, though. The best is still to come. Also present at the fight was UFC commentator and podcaster extraordinaire Joe Rogan. Trump and Rogan exchanged a handshake before returning to their seats. Watch. Rogan has previously expressed trepidation at hosting the former president on his podcast, but in recent months has been more gung-ho about his perception that life was better under Trump than under Biden. Here's Rogan last October saying this on his show. Yeah. He was in all the rap songs. Rappers would always talk <laughs> about Trump. Everybody loved Trump. It was like this wheeling, dealing, billionaire character that everybody enjoyed. Yeah. I felt like he did a decent job. As president, yeah. when you look at his regulations, it's, it certainly helped the economy. Oh, I mean, sure. th that guy who was I the head I feel like of, we were in a lot better spot then than now, for sure. Without a doubt. Yeah, I've noticed this with Joe Rogan's commentary that it's gotten a much more, even more anti-Biden. It wasn't particularly pro-Biden to begin with. It's gotten even more anti-Biden and, and maybe more uh, positively disposed toward Trump. Uh, Joe Rogan, famous, he said on his show that he, was, he declined to have Trump on because he doesn't want to be perceived as doing anything to contribute to, um, to, to him winning. I think that was in the run-up to 2020. 
Um, which actually, you, which you could pick that apart a couple different ways because you know you can have someone on your show and interview them in a critical way and then and have them not come off well. Um, so I'm not. I mean, it's his show. He can interview whatever he wants, obviously. But uh, but I didn't quite get the thinking there. So you know, people are talking about they, they interacted there at the uh, at the UFC fight. Um, is there more of a warmth, and does that mean he might one day be on Joe Rogan after all? Yeah, I suppose it's possible. Um, I also was kind of confused by that sentiment towards interviewing the former president. I mean, even if you just space it out a little bit away from. The election, then I don't see what the potential problem would be, especially if you also invite President Biden or anybody else from the left side or mm -hmm. Democrat side who might want to come on the program. He's certainly had people on before who are more on that side of the aisle. I don't think it would be totally not with keeping with the tenor of the show. And I, for one, would love a Joe Rogan Trump interview just even separate from a policy discussion, I would love for them to just kind of talk about like Trump's history in New York and in the real estate business, maybe some of his like favorite golf stories. And there's so much mm -hmm. about Trump's life that is really fascinating. He got into some of it with Tucker Carlson during their sit down interview. And I always just from a podcast perspective, enjoy listening to those kind of conversations more than like the overtly political ones anyway, because we're so inundated with political discussion around Trump all the time. But I have to say, this UFC environment is fascinating. I've never been a UFC fan, which I'm sure is not to the surprise of any of our viewers. But uh, I feel like I have to go to at least one of these yeah. matches just to feel the energy because it really seems like a, a really special atmosphere in terms of the excitement of people who are there, the types of people who attend them, and then, of course, the reaction to Trump uh, just is always so, like, over-the-top excited. Um, and you don't get to see him really interact in those types of environments very frequently. He sometimes attends football games, but it's kind of a different uh, Oh, yeah. No, the crowd situation. going wild, tons of political support for him. Um, you know, he used to attend—I remember when he used to attend um, wrestling matches uh, as well. That's the famous clip of him. He was even involved in one of the yes. matches, right, taking down— <laughs> like, of course, wrestling, not real, UFC fighting, whoa, very real whoa, whoa. Next sport. you're going to tell me Santa's not real. <laughs> uh, Santa's not real? What? <laughs> I just ruined Robbie's Christmas. Jeez, oh, that's okay. <laughs> Christmas is canceled this year. Um, anyway, you know, we don't often uh, get to share the, the table like this. So what, where are your thoughts for where Trump stands, you know, right now in terms of the nominee? I mean, he's clearly going to win um, the Republican nomination if it comes down to voting. There is, of course, this weird chance that given the reality of his legal situation, he, at the last minute, is decides not, is you know is like literally being taken to jail and decides not to run. In which case, like the Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley strategy of just of staying in it, actually isn't that crazy? Given there's this weird outside chance of that that happening. What do you think about Republican voters? I, so it, it seems like they were not ready to move on. Clearly, um, some of them think we we could have a more likely winner other than Trump if we had a general election nominee. But of course, the polls bear out right now Trump performing just as well against Biden as Ron DeSantis does, maybe even a little bit better, and then Nikki Haley doing even better than that. But uh, but still, things not looking good for Biden. And so if you love Trump and the polls show that 
that he, he is certainly capable of beating Biden, why would you jump ship? Right. I think the electability argument has been proven repeatedly to be pretty bogus when it comes to Trump. I mean, maybe they had a point a year and a half ago, yeah. but at this point, with polls consistently showing Trump trouncing Biden, particularly in swing states where, realistically, the presidential election Will be decided. Is, is decided, um, makes it pretty obvious that, that that argument doesn't hold water. And then um, I would also say on the, the legal challenges, um, as these indictments piled up um, between the last six months or so, his support has increased. Yes. So in Iowa, true. right, in the Des Moines Register poll, in October, um, he was at something like 45%. Now he's closer to 60%, even as these legal challenges have become more pertinent more immediate. He's appeared in court several times in the alleged fraud case out of New York. There's also been developments in the January 6th case as well, where it seems like that one is maybe not going to continue the way that the left thought it would. And so I think simultaneously you have a Trump base that views these indictments as overtly political and doesn't really foresee them leading to Trump facing any real legal consequences, mm. maybe at most a fine. But at the same time, if Trump were to end up actually getting convicted of one of these more serious charges and would run from jail, like his base would love it. And oh, I'm yeah, not, yeah. yeah. So, no, it's totally <laughs> like, stop, I was already supporting him. You don't have to sell me kind of thing. <laughs> like when he yeah. released the mugshot t-shirts. Yeah. I mean, I just don't, I just don't foresee like that being a reason why the people who are already supporting him would leave. No, no, no. And I wasn't saying that. Yeah. The, the legal stuff makes him more popular. I totally right. agree with you. But I think in Georgia in particular, he's facing some serious, without endorsing it, I'm not saying I agree that these things should have been brought, but that he is, given that so many other people were charged and they are, they're flipping on him, they're providing incriminating testimony against him, and in in so many other case, RICO-type cases, that results in, that's it's a really bad situation to find yourself in. So I wonder if Republican primary voters, it, they, it might, make them, might make them like him even more, but is it going to, you know, uh, uh, he'll literally be running from jail. I, we're going to find out to the extent to which that's possible. I yeah, I, I just feel like um, at that point, it becomes more of a vote for retribution, perhaps, mm. or a protest vote than it is a vote of this guy As can Trump seriously has get said, elected. I am your retribution. Uh, I am your retribution. Can't argue with that. More rising right after this. like America has taken a step through a time portal back to 2020 because we're still tearing down Confederate statues. As NBC News reports, a memorial statue in Arlington National Cemetery that some Republicans say represents unity and reconciliation in the aftermath of the Civil War. The monument features a bronze woman wearing olive leaves and holding a laurel wreath alongside a plow stock and a pruning hook. At the base of the monument, there's an inscription that says, they have beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Here's some footage of the statue being torn down. The monument also includes a black woman depicted as a mammy holding what appears to be the child of a white officer alongside slaves following his master into battle. Congressional Republicans have claimed that the decision to remove the monument is iconoclasm and that the Department of Defense that ordered this removal is overstepping its bounds. So I'll admit up front that I don't particularly care, I think, if they 
decide to take down this statue, I, I don't think it's necessary to do it. Um, and this is a little bit different than having, like, I don't know, a building named after Robert E. Lee or something, or a statue to him, although I'm not sure they should. Museums are fine. This is a this is a graveyard, so it's like there are Confederate soldiers buried there. We're not like, what's next? Are they gonna like dig up all the Confederate soldiers and toss them in the river? That would seem disrespectful to the dead, and maybe this is in keeping with that. But uh, I think I suspect you have stronger views on the subject than I do. Yeah, I mean, I would just start with the fact that what we were told would happen to so many of these Confederate memorials was a lie. The statue of Robert E. Lee that was recently torn down in uh, Charlottesville was secretly smelted, um, yes. but not so secretly because the Washington Post got to be there to record the whole process. So these things are not going into museums, they're actually being destroyed. And not only are these, uh, many of them, commemorations of the reconciliation and unification of the country after the Civil War, but they're also pieces of art. Mm -hmm. And so to destroy them, I think, is, is um, a huge disservice to our country. This particular memorial is interesting, um, just in terms of the history of it, because Confederate soldiers were not originally buried at Arlington National Cemetery, and the ones who were buried around this monument were actually moved there um, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, I believe, as a further um, uh, move towards the reconciliation of the country and an acknowledgment um, that we were supposed to come together. This was uh, in keeping with the ideas of General Grant, as well as President Lincoln, who desperately wanted to come together with the Confederate soldiers that had surrendered. Um, Robert E. Lee um, had uh, basically admitted after the war that he was sorry. He wanted to come back together with the Union. He didn't want there to be this permanent split. Lincoln uh, essentially pardoned him for his role in the Civil War. And so for us to go back now in 2023 and say that those leaders who were mm -hmm. fighting on behalf of the Union had that wrong, I think is incredibly misguided. It's also important to point out that this particular memorial is not just a piece of art, it's actually a grave marker for the artists as well. So they're taking down basically someone's headstone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what they did with the Robert E. Lee statue was crazy to me. The This video footage, you can find it um, uh, online, because it was covered by the Washington Post, where they, they melted, they try, they're, I think they're, cr they're creating a different work of art around it. Um, but it, it, it's actually like kind of scary to what like the face melts and it's like they, it's like they have to throw the ring into Mount Doom or something. <laughs> They're almost giving it more of a like a dark power by like acting as creepy. if the statue itself has some is some kind of psychic wound or, or, or something like that. It, it was very strange. Um, I'm so I'm just you know we're, we're both on the right, so I'm playing devil's advocate here for the you know for the sake of making the the, the segment uh, better and, and recognizing the other perspective. How would you respond to someone who says, well, these are essentially, you know, this is like a monument to a you know to a vanquished foe on the other side. We wouldn't put up a monument to like the German battle deaths in World War One or or any or the or the British battle deaths in the Revolutionary War. It was, was a vanquished other nation. Yeah, I mean, my response to it would be that there's a reason we brought the South back into the Union after the Civil War, right? There was always a desire for reconciliation. So it's not like these people were considered permanent traitors by the North. They were very much meant to, intended to be full American citizens even after the war. And there was sort of a recognition that these disagreements that they had about slavery and other policies between the North and the South shouldn't drive a permanent wedge between them. I mean, that was the entire point of the reconstructive period of the United States. And I've seen some people on the left argue that 
this memorial in itself symbolizes like Jim Crow. Um, this was built in 1914. Um, I think that's kind of important to point out. It's not like this was erected in the middle of the war or at the end of the war. It took some time for this particular piece By a famous um, Jewish sculpture, actually, right? Moses Ezekiel was a, was a well-known um, artist of the 19th century uh, who's be, who, because of his support for the Confederacy, has been a controversial figure. Um, I, I think I cover—I'm um, sure I did. I covered a case. I can't remember what campus it was, where an art, a display of his works of art um, was, uh, was, was ended. They were going to do one, and the university said they wouldn't do it because of um, because of the controversy over him. Even though the art in question, this was not even representing any of his art that had something to do with the Confederacy. Um, it's just because of who he was. Yeah, exactly. And then I would also just point out, and I, I know we're going to disagree on this, mm -hmm. but okay, there, there are also quite a few people on the left and libertarians who are defending the uh, erection of the Satan uh, statue oh, okay. in the Iowa State Capitol. So I would find it kind of ironic for, I know you're not defending tearing this down, but. No, I'm not. For, I would leave it, I yeah. would leave it alone because it's, from it's people, hallowed ground. Yeah. It's a, it's a grave site. I don't, I don't think we should. I think it's gross to, to really tinker in a disrespectful way with the bodies of the dead. Yeah. Regardless, it seems totally unnecessary. So it if is I may create a straw man, let me let me create the straw man. If they of, change of Robert the E. Lee Avenue to whatever <laughs> you know, Garden Way Boulevard, I don't care. Yeah, about I that. guess my point is that if the left is going to complain that you can't have Confederate statues up mm -hmm. because they are disrespecting the memory of slaves or descendants of slaves and because they represent a time period of American history that we would rather forget than to say that it is uh, requi a requirement under the First Amendment to allow a depiction of Satan to be in a state capital, which is the representation of pure evil, I would find those two positions to be rather contradictory. All right. Give me, give me the details on the, the Satanism thing. So somebody took down a Satanist um, uh, display that was in, in the state capital of what? So state? the Iowa, the Iowa. Iowa state capital had, uh, I guess, some kind of Christmas display from a mm -hmm. Christian perspective. I, it, mm -hmm. Maybe it was a manger or something. And the Satanic Temple, which now enjoys nonprofit status and claims it's a church, said that if you're going to put up this Christian display, then you also have to put up a, a Satanic display in order to uh, allow for religious freedom. And my take on this is that Satanism, by definition, is anti-religion and therefore would not be covered under the Free Exercise Clause. Okay. I, I yes, we do disagree. I, I, whatever <laughs> you know, whatever accommodations are made for other religious belief have to be made for the Satanists as well. I mean, I would just I, does the does the state capital if they have to do if they allow a display that is religious at all, right? They probably have to allow that. What if they just stick to? Santa and wreaths and Christmas guess, trees, that's not religious. I guess right? that's right. I don't know. I, would, I mean, like, I would that. never object to uh, a Jewish display, a, a Islamic display, but mm -hmm. the Satanic Temple um, has been very clear about their beliefs, and to me, they're not religious, like almost okay. obviously so. 
They don't even believe that Satan is real. They believe he's a literary figure who represents individual freedom. So the idea that this would deserve religious expression protections on the same level as a theistic religion, for example, I think is absurd. Okay, so you're going to be there taking down the Satanist. Oh, yeah, line. I'll behead him. Uh, the, the left is going to be there taking down the uh, the, uh, the the Hanukkah display. Yeah. Um, the pro-Israel <laughs> people are going to be, you know, yanking the, uh, the, uh, the Muslim head garb off uh, the Muslim yeah. person there. Well, you know what? I will behead the Satan, and then I'll take the Satan head over to the Reconciliation <laughs> Memorial, and that will be my protest. <laughs> okay. I'll hold it up like Kathy Griffin held up Trump's head. All right. This was uh, very enjoyable. More rising right after this. Santos is naming names. The expelled congressman sat down for an interview with comedian and journalist Z-Way, where he spilled dirt on exactly who in Congress is paying, is paid out. I wasn't there to play nice. I was there to expose the rot and corruption, and I did. And I'm going to continue to do it. Republicans and Democrats alike. Swampy, slimy people selling this country down a river. I would say that you are a messy that lives for drama, true uh, false. Uh, you can call me a messy I've been called worse, but I'll take it. I'll, okay. Can you make a pin and, and mail it to me? I'll, I'll send wear you. It. I'll send you. I will wear your messy pin any day. I will send you a gift as long as you declare it on your taxes. I definitely. I like paying taxes. Who else in Congress is committing fraud? They're all frauds. Name if you, them. If you if you were to Name if them. you were to put me. Name them. If you were to put them Name all them. under the same scrutiny I was put under, mm. you'd vacate the whole guy. Building. Can I name them and you just wink if Go I... Go ahead! Marjorie Taylor Greene. No. Kevin McCarthy. Yes. Lindsey Graham. Yes. Matt Gates. No. Bob Menendez. Absolutely. Goldbar Menendez. Dan Goldman. He doesn't pay his rent. Dan Good... Dan... Dan is owing $180,000 worth of rent right now on his $45,000 monthly rent, which is what most Americans make a year. You let that shit sink in. The way you know everyone's business is humbling to me. So that's interesting. He didn't exactly name names, but he gave like a like an, a thumbs up or a thumbs down <laughs> on the names uh, that she came up with. Um, you know, he says uh, he said they're all frauds. Uh, fact check, totally true, yes. accurate, correct. Um, you know, I, and I have we, we've talked about George Santos a lot, and, and and frankly, we haven't even talked about it as much as like the broader media complex because they're obsessed with this story because it's kind of salacious and it's kind of funny and the frauds he was engaged in and ad admitted to um, were uh, were made for good headlines, um, that kind of thing. But it is true, and he's right, he's not doing anything about it, but there is a broader level of corruption in Congress, uh, you know, just in terms of, like, the stock trading, you know, them making making money off information they have privately about, you know, what's going to happen in the COVID space, for instance, you know, so who, how many of them sold or changed their stock portfolios based on that. And they get to they get to make the regulations that all the companies have to go forward. So it's not even like, well, you know, anyone could have access to that information, you know, if you were connected enough, that's your right to benefit from that, I guess. But they also get to, like, make the rules for how all the companies have to operate. So it's totally crazy that they can do that and then also like directly profit from that. Yeah, and then when they leave Congress, they get to go into consulting or lobbying where they then use their insider connections and the information that they got while they were members of Congress to make millions of dollars um, advocating on behalf of specific 
products or causes or what have you, even individuals and their access to Congress. And it just becomes this sort of revolving door of corruption. So I kind of feel like George Santos should, of course, be held accountable for whatever he's done that's illegal. He's accused of um, having all kinds of campaign finance violations, where he was essentially using donor money, allegedly, to pay for cosmetic treatments, to go on vacation, to pay for his housing and all kinds of other um, absurd uh, allegations that have come out in the House Ethics Report, which led to his expulsion from Congress. But if, on the way out, he turns himself into sort of a kamikaze pilot that exposes other members of Congress who are perhaps equally as or more so corrupt, then I'm all for it. Let's, yeah. I'm, on, I'm on board for the drama. But we were, For sure. But we, we weren't really getting any new revelations there. Like, Very true. Menendez is, you know, it's so public what he's been accused of. Um, John Fetterman has called for him to go in very strong language. So have a number of other people. Um, uh, I, I think uh, the with Kevin McCarthy, the um, the issues that many conservatives have with him, their grievances were very well publicized, and in fact led to him being shown the door. So uh, you know, some new some new information would be would be very useful. That's a great point. I do find myself constantly underwhelmed by when George Santos promises to deliver the mm -hmm. goods, promises to spill the tea, and then when it comes down to brass tacks, he never really offers anything that's not already publicized. I want the inside scoop. Like, I want to know what was going on at, uh, you know, Madison Cawthorn's alleged uh, coke-fueled orgies. Did you see that Madison Cawthorn responded, I think, on Twitter or Instagram to the story, which we covered in another block, very humorous, watch if you—well, watch at your own risk, um, the, uh, the, the young man who had the—, the uh, had sex 16, in the in yeah. the Senate and has been fired. Uh, Madison Cawthorn respond Cawthorn responded to that saying, "See, I told you." Of course, that's not really what Madison Cawthorn said. He said there was like, what a cocaine orgies that he'd been invited. He to? was invited to stuff with other members of Congress. I think. Did he say but specifically it was Republican too? I think that's so. what made Kevin McCarthy really mad at him. Right, because he was sort of selling out his own party without any evidence. But I or... always I always felt like just. Having lived in D.C. for as long as I have and seen maybe like a tenth of, a, of the behavior that pe members mm -hmm. of Congress sometimes get involved in, I was not at all disbelieving of what Madison Cawthorn mm -hmm. said. But maybe I'm just a, a cynic at heart. I also, again, don't care. All I care is them um, spending my money and raising my taxes and doing bad foreign policy. And doing, I only care about their <laughs> bad policies. I, if they were all, you know— all having sex with each other in a cocaine orgy of bipartisan uh, fun, that sound that would be bad only if the result of that is then we send much more money to Ukraine. That's all I care about. <laughs> if it's a Just end the policy. If it's a pro-Ukraine orgy. They're, if, they're, if they have Ukraine flags up on the walls. If drugs <laughs> distract them from shipping more of our tax dollars overseas, that sounds like a good reason to legalize drugs to me. Oh, my goodness. But, of course, um, that's not the way it works because no, it's not. this is all going on and the bad policy is happening. I, I suppose I would just question the judgment of people who get involved in that. But Fair enough. Um, I'm more of a moralist. You uh, are. Yeah. See, there are differences. We thought it, it, we didn't know how this would work out today, having two <laughs> right-of-center people, but uh, there's, an, there's enough to disagree about. Oh, yeah. By the end of the show, we'll end up hating each other. It'll be <laughs> wonderful. Just as much as we do <laughs> with our respective The viewers are going to love watching this <laughs> unravel. <laughs> it, was a, it was a very, uh, it was a funny day, the topics lined up for today. So hopefully we did them as best we could. Thank you for tuning in. Tomorrow on Rising, Brianna will be back with us. Uh, we're so grateful for Amber 
coming in and filling in. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, now available anywhere podcasts are available. Have a good one.